to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. We're really glad that you guys are here with us today. And uh, before I get started, I actually want to take a moment and I want to thank you all. Um, especially the, the volunteers uh, here in the church who came together last week to make sure that last week's service actually took place and uh, and that people were actually ministered to. And so I want to thank the worship team for uh, for leading worship. And I want to thank the teachers for what they do and the ushers. And, and I want to thank James as always. I mean, the guy's always here and he always takes care of stuff. And I want to thank Keith for delivering the message. And uh, and, and I got to say, I listened to Keith's message and after listening to what he had to say, I, I think that he did a great job with his sermon and and uh, one of the things that I realized is that Keith really knows how to get the audience on his side. I mean, he knows what to say. In fact, right from the beginning, Keith made a point to say, guess what? You're getting out of here early, yeah. right? <laughs> this is going to be short, all right? So, so everybody said naturally, I could hear in the background go, amen, you know? So, so Keith really got some, some bonus points right from the beginning of the message. And the only downside for me is I have to follow that, you know? And uh, I would love to be like Keith and say that this is going to be a short message, but it is not good for pastors to lie. So, so, and so I'm not going to say anything about the length of this message or any other message uh, for that matter. It'll just be what it will be. And so, um, in fact, um, you know, I just want you guys to know, uh, typically, uh, I don't set out to create a sermon based on a certain length of time. I mean, uh, you know, some weeks are going to be longer than others, and some weeks are going to be shorter than others. But instead, what I do is I work from what I believe that God is trying to communicate to this church, and I'm always, always, my aim is to be submitted to to God's will. And my goal week after week after week is to prepare adequately so that God could speak to you through the message. That basically, I'd be out of the way of what God is doing. And, and, and so guess what? Some of the things that we talk about will take a little bit more time. And some of the things that we, we uh, talk about will actually move along a little bit more quickly. It just depends on what the subject is. Uh, but in the end, my primary aim above everything else, is that God would be glorified through what we do here together on Sunday mornings. And so, uh, but today, I actually, I want to right up front just apologize to you. And I'm not going to apologize for the length of the sermon because we've already talked about that. Um, but I'm going to apologize because um, uh, today I really have a heavy, heavy heart today. And I know that it probably shows. If it doesn't, then I'm doing a pretty good job. So, um, you see, today we're going to talk about some things that are probably hard to talk about. In fact, we're going to talk about some things today that are probably agonizing to talk about. And, and in the process, um, I might come off a little bit strong. And in fact, I might even come off really strong. And I might even say some things that you might not like to hear. In fact, I might even hurt some feelings today during the discussion. And you have to know that is not my intention. It is never my intention to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings, okay? Because the truth is, but, 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 but the thing we have to come to agreement on is the fact that I love you guys. I love you. You are my church family. And as a, as a family, we need to be able to openly talk about tough issues. We need to be able to address the tough issues in our lives. We need to be we, loving for sure, absolutely, without a doubt. We need to have lots and lots of grace for each other. We need to be gentle with one another. We certainly need to be tender with one another. But we also need to be honest. We need to be very, very real. You see, John tells us that Jesus, when he came to the earth, when the word became flesh, he was full of grace and truth. See, Jesus was full to the brim, overflowing with grace which means I love you unconditionally, which means I forgive you. But he was also full to the brim with truth as well, which means 
There are things in your life, in my life, in our lives that need to change. There are things that, that, that we need to repent of. There are things in our lives that are separating us from God, and we need to talk about those things. We need to be honest about those things. And so Jesus was full of grace and truth. He loved us so much that He died in our place, but Jesus also points to the truth of our sin, even when it hurts to talk about it. And He reminds us of our need for repentance. You see, repentance is not a favorite word of, of many Christians today because repentance implies change. Repentance means I have to change. And I don't like that because we want Jesus to say, come as you are and stay as you are. But that's not who Jesus is. That is not what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who are burdened you know, and weary. And he says, I don't condemn you. But he also says, go and sin no more. He also says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, you know, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I've actually come to fulfill the law. You see, Jesus is full of both grace and truth. And as his followers, and as his church, so must we be. And so with that, if you brought a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, um, I want you to turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter number 5. And, uh, and today we're in part 3 of our series titled, Be Strong and Courageous. And after reflecting about the world around us and thinking about recent developments and events, it seems to me that this title is, has a special application for Christians in the modern era. You see, as we talked about before, God has a plan for Joshua's life and the nation of Israel. And, he, and, and that plan involved great struggle. And God, and, and God exhorted Joshua three times, like in four verses, to be strong and courageous. And that's where we're going to begin in this series. We talked about, you know, just like Joshua, how God has a plan for, had a plan for Joshua. God has a plan for your life too. God has something He wants to accomplish through your life. And not just through your life, but also through this church and through our community. God has a plan for us all. There's something that He wants to accomplish in our lives. And just like Joshua, God's plan for our lives, that as we pursue that plan, it's not without conflict. It's not without struggle. It's not without battles. God's plan for our lives involves difficulty. Okay, this is why we are exhorted to be strong and courageous. And, and, and I'm going to have to confess to you right now. I need to confess to you right now. My heart has been very heavy. I've been very burdened in a way that's, that's just almost impossible to describe. I've been, I've been finding myself you know, thinking, you know, Lord, why me? I mean, why did you choose me? And, and if you chose me, why didn't you choose me at a different time? And why didn't you choose me in a different way? These are not the battles I wanted to fight. Okay? This isn't the, the, the issues that I wanted to face. So Lord, why me and why now? And if you remember, a few weeks ago I told you a story about, you know, not long after I became a pastor, you know, I began to, to feel like, you know, I wasn't sure if I was the right guy for the job, if God had made the right decision. And shortly after that, a friend of mine went to, who went to another church came to me and, and talked to me just out of the blue and said, you know, God just wanted me to tell you something. And he said that 
and she, what she told me was that if God brings you to it, God will bring you through it. And I'm telling you, that, that really encouraged me at that time. And i got to tell you, my friend, without even knowing you know, what I'm going through, once again, out of the blue, at the right time, came through with some encouragement during you know, my time of emotional struggle. And, and uh, she wasn't speaking directly to me. Actually, she made a post on, on Facebook. But, uh, but the timing was perfect because what, because what she posted was this. And it says, God has placed you where you're at this very moment for a reason. Remember that and trust he's working everything out. <laughs> and uh, in other words, God has a plan for your life. So be strong and be courageous. And again, this, that encouraged me because God promised that if we will follow his plan, if we will do what he's calling us to do, that he will knock down the obstacles. That He will be with us. And not only will He be with us, but He will never leave us or forsake us. And so being strong and courageous isn't about us finding strength and courage inside of our own hearts. It's actually about believing God. Our strength and courage is an outward manifestation of our faith that we have in God's ability to do what God has promised to do. And then, two weeks ago, we talked about the cost of what happens when we lack that faith and we're not strong and courageous and we hesitate to follow where God leads. And we talked about how this played, you know, played out in, in the nation of Israel. God you know, delivered them from Egypt and He provided their every need daily and God personally led them to the very edge of the promised land. But their fear got the better of them and it caused them to lose focus and lose faith in God and God's plan for their, their lives. And as a result, they rebelled and they hesitated and and, you know, and they, they hesitated to do what God called them to do. And the results of that were disastrous because they lost the blessing for God's plan in their life. And they, you know, they spent another 40 years wandering the desert. And every person of that generation died in the wilderness outside the promised land. And, and what we came to understand from this story is that God's will, that God will not force his blessings on you. God will not force his blessings on you. All right? And refusing to follow where God leads is actually a rebellion. And in the end, it will cost you something. Rebellion against God always, always costs something. Which is, by the way, sets up what we're going to talk about today. Now before we jump in here to the text, let me just catch you up where we are in this particular story. You see where we left off? Joshua was standing at the edge of the promised land. And God had told him that, he, that he's going to lead the people into the promised land. And he was going to give it to them as an inheritance. And, and God tells him to be strong and courageous. And Joshua, knowing what happened 40 years earlier, didn't even hesitate. And he immediately tells his people, you need to get ready to go. Okay, and that's the... Uh, and, and, so, and so then the people, they respond and they're like, yes, we're with you, Joshua. Just be strong and courageous, just like God had told him. And that ends chapter 1. And then chapter 2, you know, Joshua dispatches two men across the Jordan to, dis to spy out a fortified city of Jericho. And if you remember this story, these two men, they make it their way into the city, but almost kind of get caught. And so they're hidden and they're protected by a prostitute named Rahab. And in exchange for her, her help... They promised to basically spare Rahab's life and the life of, of Rahab's family when, when the Israelites came to attack Jericho. Now these two spies return back and they bring a good report and they basically say that God is with us and our enemies are, are, are terrified of us because of what God has already done. That God is with them. And then in chapter 3, God performs another incredible miracle where he completely stops the flow of the Jordan River, which by the way, it was at flood stage at that particular time in history. And the Israelites cross over on dry ground, similar to the miracle that was done for the Red Sea. 
And then in chapter 4, as the nations are passing over the Jordan on dry ground, God instructs Joshua to have 12 men to go into the middle of the, the riverbed and pull up 12 stones. And Joshua was to take those stones and set them up together as a memorial once they actually made camp on the other side of the Jordan because God wanted future generations to remember what God had done for the Israelites that day. And then in chapter 5, while they're camped at Gilgal, uh, God begins to prepare his people to conquer the promised land. And what he does first is he gets them right with the law. Okay? He has all the males circumcised as required by law because for some reason during that 40 years in, in, in the desert, most of the people, most of the men in Israel haven't been circumcised. And so, so God help, has them make themselves right before, before the law. And then after that, God has the nation of Israel observe the Passover and the promised land. Again, reminding them of the faithfulness of God to deliver them. And it's at that time the Israelites, for the very first time, eat of the fruit of the land. And that's when the manna from heaven that God had been providing every day stopped. Because now they're able to provide for themselves off of the land. Again, signifying God's faithfulness. And then, near the end of chapter 5, we find Joshua near the city of Jericho. And you see, um, now's the time. God had already led his people out of captivity. He had, had you know, led them through the wilderness. He commissioned Joshua to lead his people across the Jordan. They've crossed the Jordan on ground, uh, dry ground. And they're all ceremonially clean. And they've observed the Passover as a reminder of God's faithfulness and his ability to deliver them. And now is the time they're about to begin to conquer the land that God gave them. And again, as we, as we talked about before, if we can just imagine a movie scene, the camera would open up on this really large city with high, formidable walls with soldiers stationed all around them. And the people inside the city are preparing for a siege. They know what's coming. They're preparing for a battle. And then the, the camera would zoom out from the city and it would shift to a nearby encampment of troops. It's the army of Israel all organized and preparing themselves for battle. And then the camera then zooms and, and begins to, to shift to a figure that's kind of standing off to the side by himself. And we discover it's Israel's leader. It's, it's, it's Joshua. And he's standing there. And he's looking off at the distance at the city of Jericho. And I can imagine that he can, he's looking at the city walls. He can see them from the distance. And you've got to understand, he probably has never seen anything like this before. He's probably never seen a fortified city like this before. And you have to understand... The Israelites don't have any siege weapons with them. They don't have battering rams with them. They don't have really, really tall ladders to scale the walls with that most people would normally have when they're going to attack a, a fortified city. They don't have the equipment to build siege ramps. And they don't have the, the, the physical equipment for a long siege battle. They don't have all the physical things that they need to engage in, in the fight that they're about to engage in. And I imagine Joshua in that moment is looking at Jericho thinking to himself, All right, God. You brought us this far. <laughs> you said that you're going to knock down our enemies. You said that you're going to be with us wherever we go. Well, our enemies are tough, and they are, they are dug into a fortified city. So, God, you're going to have to help with this one. And as he, as he stands there, it says in verse 13 that he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, now here's what you've got to understand here, okay? Joshua in this moment, doesn't recognize who this is, okay? But he knows that this man is ready for a fight. 
And the reason why he knows that this man's ready for a fight is because in that culture, if you're not ready for a fight, your sword is on your hip. It's in your sheath. If your sword is out here like this in your hand, that means you're ready for a fight. You are ready to go into battle. But Joshua understood that. He understood that this is a guy I don't know. There's somebody here that I don't know, and he's ready for a fight. And so Joshua does what I think anybody else would do. He, he asks a logical question, which we find in the remainder of verse 13. He says, he asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? In other words, you know, are you, are you for us or against us? I mean, that's a reasonable question, right? I mean, this guy shows up, he's ready to fight, and Joshua wants to know, man. Okay, are you one of the good guys or the bad guys? I mean, whose side are you on, stranger? But then Joshua receives an answer from this person that he wasn't ready for. Because in verse 14 it says, And he, that stranger said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. Now, I want you to notice Joshua's reaction because it says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped him, saying, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of, of the Lord's army says to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, and for the place that you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did so. What just happened here? I mean, this is a strange little scene kind of in the middle of our story. Joshua's staring off into the distance in Jericho, and suddenly a man appears holding a sword, and Joshua asks him, whose side are you on? And the guy replies, no. And he says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and Joshua falls down you know, flat on his face and asks, what do you want me to do? You know, and this strange character says, take off your shoes where you're standing is holy ground. What's going on here? You see, these are just four verses in the middle of this big story Right? And, 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 and this story is about to move on to really where everybody wants to go anyway, which is the Battle of Jericho. These four strange verses are just easy to kind of read over in this little section because they're kind of odd and they're kind of strange. But the truth is there's a world of meaning in this little bitty text. In fact, there's so much we're going to actually spend the rest of our time looking together at the text and the implication for our lives. The first question when we look at this text we have to ask, though, is who's the stranger that identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. Because, I mean, it could be anybody, right? I mean, really, it could be, you know, a really powerful holy man, you know, that, that God put, you know, in, in control of his army. Or maybe it could be a really powerful angel, angel, okay? Who is this mysterious commander? Well, for us, in this little text, there are several clues uh, for us to, to look at. In fact, the first clue uh, from the text is in verse 14. Notice, notice what it says just after the stranger tells him that he is the commander of the Lord's army, it says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. That's the first clue. Okay? Joshua worshipped the commander of the Lord's army. Now you've got to understand, this is really, really important because when Joshua worshipped the commander, you know, this commander did not rebuke him. All right, and this is important because anytime somebody in the Bible falls down and begins to worship another human being, that human being goes, stop, don't do that. Don't do that. You need to worship God. And whenever someone falls down and worships an angel, like John did in Revelation 19.10, the angel always rebukes him and says, don't do that. No, no, no. You need to get up. I'm a fellow servant. You need to worship God. You see, the only person that's worthy of worship is God himself. And Joshua worshipped this stranger. Okay? Joshua worships this stranger. Now, the second clue in this text is that Joshua calls this mysterious man Adonai, or Lord. 
Because Joshua recognizes that he is not some created being. He recognizes this is God. And understand, Joshua is the general of, of, of the nation of Israel. There's not a man that he answers to. There's no man that he calls Lord. He is the head honcho. The only one that Joshua would call Lord is God himself. And so this commander is God. But the identity of this commander is actually more specific than that. It's not just simply God generically. This commander has a specific identity. You see, in verse 15 it says, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And this is really significant to us because, because Joshua was really close to Moses. So he's heard all of Moses' story, and he's read and studied the books that Moses has wrote. Okay? And Joshua would remember the story that Moses told and wrote down about when he was in the desert, and he was a goat herder minding his own business, and then suddenly he sees a burning bush. And, 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 and Moses, as the story goes, goes, goes over and, and went to this bush and discovered that it was God who was in the burning bush. And as Moses begins to approach, God said to him, Take off your sandals off your feet, for the place that you're standing is holy ground. And so Joshua understood that this commander is the God from the burning bush who identified himself as the great I am. We see, that's the third clue. Joshua knew that the stranger was the great I am from Moses' story. That he was the God who calls himself, I am who I am. Am. Now, for us who have the New Testament, we understand from John 8.58 what Jesus says about this I am person. Because Jesus very clearly tells us, and he tells the Jewish leaders at the time of his day, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. See, Jesus emphatically claimed to be the great I am. Jesus claimed to be that person that was inside the burning bush. Okay? And so this stranger that Joshua that was talking to on this day was, was not only God, but was in fact a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ himself. Joshua saw the, the, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And so the commander of the Lord's army is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, you know what that means for us? It means that Jesus is the one who's standing there with him. It was Jesus who appeared to him with a sword drawn. It was Jesus who was ready to fight. And more importantly, it is it's Jesus who wins the battle. Jesus who leads the charge and ultimately wins the battle. Now, this is really important for us to understand because as you follow where God is leading you, you can have confidence that your obstacles will fall because Jesus is the one who is in charge and who is the one who will lead and win the battle. It is Jesus who says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. It is Jesus who, who gives us the victory. That, my friends, is why we can be strong and courageous. Because Jesus is the one who wins the battle. In fact, most, the most important battle that we will ever face has already been won. Jesus has already conquered death. Jesus conquered the grave. He conquered the power of sin. You have been set free. Jesus has already won. The battle was already fought on Calvary. And guess what? Jesus won. Our prime enemy is already ultimately defeated. So we have even more reasons to be strong and courageous. Now, make no mistake. Just as God has a purpose for your life, there's still battles to be fought. And our adversary isn't going to go away quietly. 
He still wields a great deal of power on the earth. And he still feverishly is working to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's working overtime to take as many people to hell with him as he can. And we can see this power at work, especially in recent days. Which leads to the most important point of this text. You see, Joshua asked Jesus, the commander of the army of God, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you on our side or are you on their side? I mean, whose side do you want? And Jesus answers him back and says, no. No? What do you mean no? Right? I mean, whose side are you on? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord now that I've come. You see, you have to understand the essence of what Jesus is trying to communicate to Joshua. What he's saying is, hey man, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, whose side am I on? The question is not, whose side is God on? The question isn't, am I on you know, you know, your side or, or their side? That's not the question. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And the real question is, whose side are you on, Joshua? Because there are only two sides. There's God's side, and then there's not God's side. And so the real question is, are you on God's side, or are you not? Are you on God's side? That is the real question. The question is, is God on my side? The question is, am I on God's side? That's the question that we need to ask. You see, that question changes everything. I think that as Christians in America, we have lost sight of this. We think that our relationship with God is about us. We think that God exists to bless our lives. We think that God is here to help us, you know, to get what we want and go where we want to go. And we ask, is God on our side? But that is desperately, desperately the wrong question to ask. Are we on God's side? And that, my friends, that's the crux of the matter today. Because we live in a country that has seen incredible blessings and prosperity that is absolutely God-given. Because whether we want to talk about it or not, or whether we want to admit it or not, the United States of America came into existence because of Christian ideals. Okay? It came into existence because of the blessing of God. Yes, there were other outside influences, such as the Enlightenment and, and Greco-Roman philosophy. But at its core, what made America work as a nation was the foundation set by Christians working together to follow God with all their hearts. And more than any nation in the world, America has been on God's side as it pursued ideals like freedom and justice and liberty and equality and liberation and charity. God has used the United States of America in a mighty way to spread the hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Now don't misunderstand me. America is also responsible for a lot of ugliness in the world as well. But just like the nation of Israel, with all of its faults and its flaws, the United States at one point was on God's side. And to, to deny that is just to be absolutely willfully ignorant of history. The United States of America was once on God's side. But that is not how it is anymore. The United States is growing more secular America is, is increasingly rejecting God and the church, and we can see the fruits of that all the way around us. And let's not fool ourselves. The decision that was handed down by the Supreme Court on Friday shouldn't be a surprise to you. Because it's been coming. We can see that it's been coming. And it's been coming longer than we might actually think. Because I feel like it's been a long time since we as a nation have been on God's side. In fact, I think we have been 
on our own side for a long time as a country, hoping that God is with us. I mean, why not? I mean, we're America, right? I mean, isn't God on our side? I mean, don't we sing God bless America at every sporting event? I mean, isn't it isn't like just the way it is that, that there's God and there's us and, and we're like that? I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? But when you actually look at history for the last 2,000 years, you have the life cycle of nations and then you have the unchanging sovereign plan of God. And I hate to tell you this, just because we're Americans doesn't mean that God is on our side. Because that's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The right question that we have to ask is, are we on God's side? And that right there for us, that right there, that's their individual application for us in our lives. The application is this, all right? God has a side, and we need to make sure that we are on that side. God has a side, and we need to make sure that we're on it. Because let's just be really, really clear about this, okay? As Christians, we're part of a universal body of Christ, Because as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our primary citizenship, my friends, is heaven. That supersedes our citizenship here on earth. If you were a Christian, you were a citizen from heaven first and foremost. You see, it's Christian first, then it's American second. But so many of us get this backwards and out of order and and, and the other way around. And so many of us think that one comes from the other, but let me just tell you something. There will continue to be Christians, and there will continue to be a church, and there will continue to be a kingdom of heaven long after the United States of America is gone. The question that you have to ask, regardless of what happens in America, and regardless of what happens with our government, what the government has to say, and regardless of what popular culture is, is moving towards, and regardless of what people say about the right side and the wrong side of history, regardless of all that, the question you have to ask your side is, am I on God's side or am I not? You see, right now, my heart is so burdened. It's burdened to the point that it feels like it could shatter into a billion pieces like right now. To say that I have a heartache is an understatement. And and I cannot tell you how many times I've wished that I wasn't here during this time. That it wasn't, you know, that this wasn't the defining issue of our generation. I wish that I was born 50 years earlier or 100 years earlier. Sometimes I wish that I could have been on a missionary trip to some foreign country in the 1800s because it seems like the difficulties faced then would be easier to face than what we're having to face today in our world around us. You see, my heart breaks not because our government decided to turn its back on 2,000 years of established historical understanding or because the Supreme Court decided to follow popular culture instead of what the Constitution says or even that the government had subverted the will of the majority of people again in America because the truth is governments historically will always do what is politically expedient for them to do. Which, by the way, historically has also included the persecution of the church. My heart breaks not because popular culture is self-destructive and that it's breathtakingly profane in its view of God. The truth is we know what popular culture is about and we know the direction that popular culture is already headed. We all understand that the world is going to continue to grow in depravity as it continues to reject a sovereign God. If you read the Bible, you understand that. If you look at the world around you, you can understand that. My heart breaks 
because the events of Friday have revealed to me just how many more people are lost than I once thought. You see, I'm an optimist. Yes, my wife. I see the best in people. And I tend to think that the remnant of God's people, though it might not be the majority of the world, okay, I would, I would tend to think of this, this remnant of God's people as this huge, vast group of people. But this week, I came face to face with the truth that there are people, there are, there are lots of people who are lost souls, more than I had ever imagined. There are people that I know personally that are lost they have no idea who God is. Now, they might be able to, to quote a Bible verse or two out of context. You know, like, you know, God is love and judge not lest you be judged. But they have no idea who God is. They have not met the holy God of the Bible. They have not met the risen, risen King of Jesus Christ. They may say, Jesus died for my sins, but they have no understanding of why Jesus had to die in the first place. They have no understanding that sin is so vile and so insidious and so ugly that it, that it took God coming to earth to shed his own blood to make a way for us to turn away from our sin, which is repentance, and to turn towards God and to be saved. I saw Friday as my heart broke because people I know and love and respect celebrated what the government of the United States, you know, and not only gave approval to but, but, but it actually institutionalized, as John said, sin. And I can't even articulate what the ramifications of this are. In fact, John Piper wrote an article on Friday. And I'd like to just share his thoughts with you. Um, he's just so much more eloquent than I am. He writes, Jesus died so that heterosexual and homosexual sinners can be saved. Jesus created sexuality and has a clear will for how it is to be experienced in holiness and joy. His will is that a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's Mark 10, 6-9. In this union, sexuality finds its God-appointed meaning, whether in personal physical unification, symbolic representation, sensual jubilation, or fruitful procreation. For those who have forsaken God's path of sexual fulfillment and walk into homosexual intercourse or heterosexual extramarital fornication or adultery, Jesus offers astonishing mercy. See, he points out that there is mercy for all who commit sexual sin and that there is salvation for those who repent of their sins and turn to God. And then he goes on to say, but today this salvation from sinful sexual acts was not embraced, but instead there was a massive institutionalization of sin. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court of the United States of America has ruled that states cannot ban same-sex marriage. The Bible, John Piper says, is not silent about such a decision alongside the clearest explanation of the sin of homosexual intercourse, which is Romans 1, 24-27, stands the indictment of the approval and institutionalization of it. Though people know intuitively that homosexual acts, along with gossip and along with slander and insolence and hauntiness and boasting and faithlessness and, and, and heartlessness and ruthlessness are all sin, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Again, Romans 1, 29-32. I tell you with tears that many glory to their shame. Philippians 3, 18-19. This is what the highest court of the land did today, knowing these deeds are wrong, yet approving those who practice them. He says, my sense that we do not know the calamity that's happening around us 
He says that nothing, this is nothing new. The, the new thing, the new thing for America and new for history is not homosexuality. That brokenness was around since we were broken from the fall. And there's a distinction between the orientation of something and the act of something. Just like there's a difference, as he says, a difference between my orientation towards pride and my acting of boasting. What's new is not even the celebration of the approval of homosexual sin. Homosexual behavior has been exploited and reveled in and celebrated in art for millennia. What's new is the normalization and the institutionalization that's the new calamity, he says. The main reason for writing this, he says, is not to mount a political counter-assault. I don't think that this is the calling of the church as such. My reason for writing is to help the church to feel the sorrow of these days and the magnitude of the assault on God and His image in man. Christians, more clearly than others, can see the tidal wave of pain that's on the way. Sin carries with it its own misery. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error, Romans 1.27. And on top of sin's self-destructive power comes eventually the wrath of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Christians know what's coming. And not only because of what we see in the Bible, because we have tasted the sorrow of the fruits of our own sin. We do not escape the truth that we reap what we sow. And our marriages and our children and our churches and our institutions, they are all troubled, he says, by our sin. The difference, he says, and this is the important part, the difference is we weep over our sins. We don't celebrate them. We don't institutionalize them. We turn to Jesus for forgiveness and help and we cry to Jesus who will deliver us from the wrath to come. And in our best moment, we, we weep for the world and our own nation. In the days of Ezekiel, he says, God put a mark of hope on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem, Ezekiel 9.4. This, he says, is what I'm writing for. Not political action, but the love of the name of God and compassion for the city of destruction. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He wraps up that with Psalm 119, 136. My heart breaks because of the price of sin. My heart breaks because of the coming spiritual carnage. My heart breaks because there's a price to pay. Because sin always, always, always exacts a price. In fact, both sides of this debate have labeled this ruling the Roe versus Wade of our generation, which is ironic. Because that, by the way, is when the government gave consent to the killing of unborn children for any and every reason and went into the business of funding those killings. And for those to get an abortion and for those who celebrated women's rights as such, there was a heavy price to pay because 60 million, let that sink in, 60 million children have been killed in abortion clinics in the United States since 1973. In my lifetime, 60 million children. Let me put this in perspective. World War II, with all its ferocity and its violence and its evil claims, 60 million lives. 
That's how many children have, deci- have died since 1973 because of this court decision. Let me put it a different way. You take the population of the state of California and double it, and it's just over 60 million people. Or how about this? Take the population of, of, of Boron, California, and multiply it times 24,000 times. That's how many children have died since 1973 because of government-sanctioned abortions. Just let this sink in just for a minute. That doesn't include the damage that was done to the mothers either, okay? Because there are millions and millions and millions of women who suffer from depression and debilitating mental illness because they've had abortions and they understand the cost. It doesn't even touch the damage that was done to marriages or relationships or the damages that was, or, or the suicide that, that come about because of the guilt that came from that. My friends, sin has grave consequences. And let me just tell you, when they were arguing at the time, you know, this case that people would say millions of children are going to die, and they, they would talk about the psychological and the, the social impact of abortions on our culture, and the others would say, you're blowing this out of proportion. You're just using fear to prove your point. You're just hateful. You just want to oppress women. But today we stand here. In one generation, and our nation has blood, has the blood of the 60 million unborn children on its hands. And what's worse is that abortion today is so commonplace that most people don't even think about it anymore. Christians don't even think about it anymore. We're desensitized to it. What a scary and unnerving place to be before a holy God. John Piper was absolutely right when he said the tidal wave of pain that's coming because of this. Because we cannot fully process the ramifications of this decision. The full scope of it may not even be realized for decades to come. You see, when the Supreme Court gave pornography the protection as free speech... No one ever imagined at that time the proliferation of pornography online. And they certainly didn't imagine the devastating effects that it would have on young men and women who would grow up with unlimited supplies of graphic, hardcore pornography at their fingertips 24 hours a day. Only now are researchers able to actually even quantify the destruction. And, and, and it's so bad that the secular organizations, secular organizations, not just the church, are going, we got to do something about this. I mean, this is destroying our lives. You see, my heart breaks because we have no idea. We have no idea what kind of weapon the enemy has just been, re- that has just released on our culture. You see, we, we are just days away from this decision And already groups are preparing their legal cases to argue for things like polygamy and polyandry and polyamory. And the justices of the Supreme Court are saying, guess what? That'll be an easier case than the case for same-sex marriages. And they're going to use all the same arguments anyway. I was born this way. Don't I have the right to love who I love? I mean, love is love, right? And just a couple weeks ago, what's even more startling than this before this decision even came out, there was a conference held at Cambridge University in England. And it was held, it dealt with the, psycholo- the, 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 psycholo- the psychology of, of sexual attraction. And the central topic by these professors was, hold on to yourself, okay? The central topic of this conference was that it is natural and it is normal for men to want to have sex with children. 
That is the theme of the conference. Prebescent teens and post-prebescent teens who are 11 through 14. There is already a move right now to begin to start the legal process to not persecute pedophiles because the arguments are the same. And it doesn't end there, okay? Because there's a question that's already been raised by the students and the faculty of Columbia University after a professor there at Columbia was tried and convicted and is now in prison after having a three-year sexual affair with his biological daughter. They're consenting adults, they say. I mean, if homosexual relationships are fine, then why is this wrong? They're consenting adults. You should love who you want to love. I mean, if the Bible doesn't have a standard for that, why does it have a standard for this? I mean, love is love, right? And that isn't even to talk about the inevitable conflict between a person's sexual freedom and another person's religious freedom. I mean, the Supreme Court did say that, that we as Christians have the right to believe that homosexuality is wrong. We have the right to believe that. But what happens when we teach those beliefs to our children and our children go to school and then express their beliefs to someone and they're met with a harsh criticism and they're told they're nothing but bullies and bigots for what they believe? There's already a conversation amongst intellectual elites start stating that parents need to stop trying to influence their children in matters of faith and allow them simply to experience the world without a religious guide or religious framework so they can choose for themselves what they want to believe. See, the problem isn't a question of love. It never has been. It's a question of sin. Sin distorts our reality. Sin creates destruction. Sin ultimately separates us from God. And that, my friends, that is the worst and most tragic of all the consequences. You see, in our desire to want to be tolerant and to accepting and loving, sometimes we forget the key part of love is to tell people the truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. A huge part of grace and love is telling others the truth. Warren Wiersbe, another pastor, says this. He goes, truth without brutality, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. If we love each other, we must tell each other the truth. And the truth is this, sin separates us from God, especially when we refuse to see sin for what it actually is, and we actually openly embrace that sin. In fact, Pastor John Parnell wrote an article that illustrates this point. And let me, just, let me just read just an excerpt of what he said. He said, homosexuality is not the only sin mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And he quotes the scripture and says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not the only sin mentioned, but it's different from all the rest, at least right now. At this moment in history, contrary to the other sins listed here, homosexuality is celebrated by larger society with pioneering excitement. It is seen as a good thing, as the new hallmark of progress of humankind. But to be sure, the masses increasingly make no bones about sin in general. Immeasurable, innumerable people are idolaters. Not to mention those who are sexually immoral or commit adultery. Or people who steal or greedy, you know, or get wasted and revile neighbors or swindle others. 
It all happens all the time. But each of these unrepentant sins are the same in the sense of God's judgment. They all deserve God's wrath. We're constantly reminded, such were some of you, you in the church. 1 Corinthians 6.11 But as far as I know, he goes on to say, None of those sins is applauded so aggressively by, the, by whole groups of people who advocate for their normalcy. Sexual immorality is no longer the tip of the spear for progressive push. Adultery is still frowned upon by most people. Accusations of greed can still smear a, a person's political can, uh, campaign. Thievery is still not openly embraced. And there's no official you know, incentives saying it's okay to take things that don't belong to you. There's no one, you know, there's no such thing as a drunk agenda. Most people aren't proud to choose a beverage over stability. And there, there aren't any petitions that the government should abolish the driving restrictions for inebriated individuals. Reviling others is still isn't seen as a way to win friends and influence people. Okay? Swindling, especially on the corporate level, usually gets someone thrown in jail. In fact, our infrastructure... Um, our, in America, the American economy depends upon some measure of our shared disdain for conniving scammers. Perhaps, except for fornication, these, seen, these sins are still seen in a pretty negative light, but not homosexual practice, not by those who are now speaking the loudest and holding positions of prominence. According to the emerging consensus, homosexuality is different. And as Christians, he says... We believe with the deepest sincerity that the embrace of homosexual practice along with other sins keeps people out of the kingdom of God. It's the, these are my words, it's the embrace of sin regardless of what the sin is that keeps people from the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, as Christians, we believe with the deepest sincerity that the embrace of homosexual practice along with other sins keeps people out of the kingdom of God. And if our society celebrates it, we cannot both be caring and we cannot say, not say anything. Too much is at stake. This means... And it's absolutely an oversimplification to say Christians or conservative evangelicals are just simply against homosexuality. The truth is, as he's trying to articulate in this, this article, is what is at stake is the very salvation of other people. That there are people who are embracing and celebrating sin, and that is willfully embracing, that, that willful embracing of sin, regardless of what the sin is, is tantamount to, to spiritual suicide. There are people who are lost, and there are people who are helping them and celebrating with them as they march onwards toward their ultimate doom. That is the real cost of sin. Let me just tell you, if that were not the real cost of sin, then Christ would not have had to die because of it. God would just say, I love you and you'd be forgiven. But that is not the truth. Your sin and my sin and the sins of the world cost a greater price than we could ever imagine. And to be cavalier about sin and to be willfully embrace and celebrate sin, regardless of what your motives are, is to spit in the face of the crucified Christ. The author of Hebrews makes it painfully clear. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, listen to these words, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three persons. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant which he has sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now let me just tell you something. This right here, this isn't the Old Testament talking here. This was probably written by Paul. Now some people think it was Peter and that's fine. But the point being is, it's one of the two of them. And it's written in the New Testament, all right? This is a stern and strong and very clear warning to Christians. This is a truth that we must all get clear about. This is the truth that we must tell each other. Because the truth is, God has a side. And we better be on it. We're either on God's side or we are not on His side. Let me just tell you, friends, God's side, His side isn't where people embrace and celebrate sin. That is not God's side. Sin costs too much. And if you find yourself saying, just because you know someone or somebody in your family is caught up in this sin, that it's okay, God is love, and and, and I'm not going to judge, and God will be okay with this. If you find yourself saying these kinds of things, and you're celebrating you know, with those who, who promote this sin, my friends, I'm going to tell you, you will find your, that you're on the side, that you will find that you are on the side of popular culture, and you will find yourself on the side, maybe even of history. And that you will also find yourself on the side of political correctness, but you were not on God's side. I'm not saying that you don't love God. I'm not saying that you don't want to be one of His children. I'm just telling you, if you're on the side of willful sin, if you're on the side of gratuitous, unrepentant sin, regardless of how you feel, you're not on God's side side. Regardless of your emotions, regardless of your attachments to other people, regardless of what is seen as culturally acceptable, you are not on the side of God. You see, Joshua asked Jesus, are you on our side or are you on their side? And that's the question that popular culture always wants to ask God. God, whose side are you on? That's the wrong question. It is absolutely the wrong question. The right question is, are we on God's side? Because he absolutely does have a side. God has a side, and the other side that is not God's always comes with a price and always leads to destruction. Now, the big question is, what do we do in light of this? How are we supposed to respond to what's happened in our world around us? Well, we've got to remember that we need to be on God's side. And let me just tell you, when it comes to this issue, the church and, um, you know, and, and many Christians have not always been on God's side. Because Christians and the church have, have also helped to make a mess of this problem. In fact, our behavior in many respects has made this problem worse. Many Christians and many churches have marginalized and maligned and outright mistreated homosexual and transgender people. The church has singled them out And they singled out their sin as particularly heinous. There have been pastors who have preached fire and brimstone 
to those who practice homosexuality all the while they're embroiled in their own extramarital affairs. The churches will stand up and publicly, you know, decry and proclaim their disdain for homosexuals around the world, and then they will quietly try to cover up the indiscretions of those people who are in their church and in their church leadership. That is hypocrisy. That's right. Also, there are many Christians who think that the church is about them. They think that it's about what they like. They think church is about their personal preference. They think that it's a place for them to come and be served. They, 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 you know, they could care less about the sinners in the world around them. What they care about is the length of the service. What they care about is what music's being played. What they care about is whether or not they like the pastor or not. For them, church is about what they're used to instead of seeing what the church really needs to be, which is a hospital for sinners who desperately, desperately, desperately need the love of Jesus Christ. Many Christians have turned the church into some kind of social club where the message is that you better get your act together and you better get used to the way we do things here before you come in here. And subsequently, what has happened? We've left people feeling ostracized. We've left them feeling unwanted. And they walk away from God. Or even worse yet, they create churches that just affirm their sinful behavior. So let me just be frank with you. When it comes to dealing with this issue, we the church have not always been on God's side. So what do we do? How do we get on God's side? How do we, as the body of Christ, show up in the world full of grace and also full of truth? Well, the first thing, number one, we need to pray for guidance. We need to pray to God for guidance. Now, some of you might think that that sounds like trite and lame, but as Ed Stetzer says, Christians don't pray enough. We don't pray for difficult issues. We pray you know, before we eat, we pray before we sleep, but we don't pray enough in between. The truth is our world is radically changing around us. We need God's wisdom and guidance more than ever, and each one of us needs to be in prayer and seeking that wisdom and guidance. Number two, we need to rejoice in the Lord. Now understand, I'm not saying that we rejoice in this decision because our hearts still can be broken, but we still need to rejoice in God. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, give God, give thanks to God in all circumstances. God is still God, and He is still good, and He is still in control. And we can and we should continually, as His children, rejoice in Him. And number three, we need to repent. In fact, the, uh, an author for the Christi uh, Christianity Today, Mark Galli, says it this way. He goes, another temptation now is to point the finger at the forces, political, social, philosophical, spiritual, arrayed against the church and its moral teachings. But he says, without denying the reality of, of principalities and powers found in Ephesians 6.12, we do well to ponder this. What actions and attitudes have we imbibed that contribute to our cultures dismissing our ethics? Our homophobia has revealed our fear and prejudice, biblical inconsistency, our passions to root out sexual sins, while, while relatively indifference to things like racism and gluttony and other sins opens us up to charges of hypocrisy. Before, he says, before we spend too much time trying to straighten out the American neighborhood, we might get our own house in order. You see, before we go out and we try to convince people of their sins, we would do well to identify our own sins and shortcomings and then do something about it. Otherwise, 
Our words and our deeds will not line up and our message will fall short. And then number four, we need to love our neighbors. And that means everyone around us, including our enemies. That means our atheist neighbor, our alcoholic neighbor, our drug addict neighbor, the Muslim neighbor, the Mormon neighbor, and especially our homosexual and transgender neighbor. We need to love these people unconditionally. We need to let them know that they are welcome in our community and they are welcome in our church and they are important to us and their struggles mean something to us. We are concerned for them. But again, as Warren Wiersbe puts it, truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. We must give them both love and truth. We cannot simply say, I love you. And you just need to do what makes you happy. Love is love and do whatever you want. You know, that's going to, you know, that's going to be okay. We can't do that. But at the same time, we can't simply just continue to engage in over and over these pointless debates that turn ugly and hateful. We need to love them and point them somewhere. What we need to do is we need to love them with a love that we have for our family members. And if you're a parent, you particularly understand what I'm saying here. You see, if your family, with your families, you love them and you care for them and you make a point to always be there for them. But if your child does something wrong, you let them know that you still love them and it doesn't change, but you can't endorse what they're doing. In fact, you actually oppose what they're up to. That's what we need to do. We need to love our neighbors in that same loving way that makes it clear that we don't agree and endorse what they're doing. But we're here for them no matter what. You see, love doesn't mean I have to accept sinful behavior. God loves you. And he doesn't endorse your sin or accept your sinful behavior. And number five, we need to show and we need to share the love of Jesus. Ed Stetzer points out in an article that he wrote on Friday, he says, this is an important time This is not the first time same-sex marriage has been legal. The people of Maine voted November 6, 2012 to legally recognize same-sex marriage. Ed continues to say, I had a privilege to preach in Maine the Sunday after that Tuesday at the largest church in the state, which is called Pathway Vineyard. And he says, the sky did not fall. Churches were not padlocked. The church did what, you know, that week what the church did the week before. They showed and they shared the love of Jesus. They didn't scream in anger. They didn't lash out in hate because they knew they cannot hate people and reach them at the same time. You can't hate someone and reach them at the same time. He says they remained on mission and so should we. Regardless of how cultural issues like this are decided No matter what sort of authority Christian values have in our culture, we must always be about Jesus' mission. The good news that God sent His Son to live a perfect life, to die the death we deserve to die, and, and, and raise again to glory is the first and most important part of our mission. It's the first important and the true and is true regardless of the laws and of courts and culture. As believers and the ones who are sent by Jesus as great commissionaries, we must pray for our communities, love our neighbors, and share the hope that is within us. As Christians, this is just another step. As Christians are losing their long-held cultural clout in the West, 
The fo focus must be, as he says, the focus must be not panic or anger or fear or disdain. Our focus must be our mission. My friends, ultimately, to be on God's side is to be focused on the hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on that note, if you just allow with me uh, to share a video with you, um, some of you have probably seen this before, but I believe it's a good reminder of, uh, of who we are and who we need to be as individuals and as a church. So what does this mean for us? I mean, what does this tension between grace and truth have to do with us? I mean, Jesus, the Bible says, is full of grace and truth. What does that mean then for you and, and for me and for this church? Everything. You see... We are to be spiritually maturing Christ followers, growing into the fullness of the image of Christ, which means if Jesus was full of grace and truth, then I need to be full of grace and truth, which means you need to be full of grace and truth. And because we're the church, then the church needs to be full of grace and truth. And Christ is the example of that. In fact, let me show you what this looks like. It looks like this. No matter who you are, and no matter where you've been, and no matter what you've done, you are welcome here. That you are welcome in our building, that you are welcome in our community, and you are welcome in our lives. And we love you and care about you, and we're here for you, no strings attached. And understand, we're going to be honest with you, we're going to tell you the truth, because, because we love you, we will tell you the truth. We owe it to you and we owe it to God to be real with you and honest with you, even if it hurts. And so we're going to tell you that drunkenness is killing your family and your relationships. That pornography is eating you up from the inside out. That jealousy and bitterness is going to destroy your family. That infidelity and adultery and lust and envy, all those things are sin. And those sins dishonor God. And that sin at some point will cost you something in your lives. A sin always does. We're going to tell you that the way that you act at work, away from church and away from your Christian friends, that matters. The way that you treat your kids matters. The way that you talk to your spouse matters. The way that you treat strangers, especially those who are different from you, matters. But you also have to understand, we we don't condemn you. We don't hate you. We don't look down our self-righteous noses at you. In fact, we forgive you. We love you. More importantly, we identify with you. And we're here for you. And we're praying for you. And you and your life is important to us. And we want to help you. We want to help you draw close to the only one who can offer you any real hope at all and any real healing at all, which is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to help you to get to know who He is. And we're going to help you have a relationship with Him. We're going to help you begin to follow Him and to become a spiritually maturing Christ follower too. And we're going to tell you the truth because it's going to get hard. And at times, you're going to have doubts. And there'll be times you're going to wonder where God is. And there'll be times you're going to feel like you're failing God. And I'm going to tell you right now, there will be times you will fail Him. But we're going to give you grace. And we won't get offended by your doubt. And we won't get upset by your heart questions and we won't disown you when you fall down and make a mess of things we're going to love you and we're going to consistently remind you that Jesus loves you and he loves you so much that he died for you and when the road gets hard we're going to be here right here with you and no matter what happens we will be here all the while pouring into your life both grace and truth because we are 
a loving community of Christ followers, passionately in pursuit of Jesus, deeply connected to one another, completely committed to share the hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world because we are First Baptist Church and you are welcome here. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we just um, come before you with humbled and broken hearts. And we just come before you just begging for your mercy on the lives who don't know you. We pray for revival in our country. We pray for revival in our community. We pray for restoration of, of sight that people could see you again. We pray, Lord God, that there would be a resurgence in this generation of people who passionately are in love with you and who just will chase you with a reckless abandon, who will love other people in a way that just astounds the world around them and they would see absolutely we are the children of God. I pray, Lord God, for those who this affects. I pray, Lord God, that we would all have tender hearts, that we wouldn't be embittered, that we wouldn't be angry, we would be brokenhearted and burdened for the ones who are lost. That you'd give us a fresh and a brand new perspective on how to talk to these people. That we'd be able to share the love of Jesus in a brand new way. That we'd be able to, to tear down the old stereotypes that get in the way of our conversations. That we'd be able to reach across the table and let them know that our love for them is sincere. That we would continue to tell them the truth as lovingly and as patiently as we can, but they would see in us, even if they never agree, a people who are passionately in love with you and a people that are in love with them. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would raise in this community a people who would not sit idly by, but get out into the world around them And they would go and they would seek the lost. And they would be burdened about it the rest of their lives and they wouldn't rest until we all go home and stand in your glorious presence. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Check us out at fbcboron.org. And would you consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the gospel and the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the rest of the world?